0: Hello and welcome to this last episode of the current series of The Gallimorphry. Thank you for joining us again. My name is Will and joining me, as ever, is my co-host Nick. How are you doing today,
1: Nick? I'm sad because, as you said, this is the last episode of this series and it's been quite a journey learning about all these amazing things and hopefully everyone's learned a little bit as well. Yeah, so sadly we'll have to pack up and uh,
0: leave... Our home in the basement of the carpet shop, at least for a little while, until we we come back later this year with the second series. Oh no, what a shame. Maybe you'll have to readapt to the sunlight uh, when you go topside. No, no, I think I'll just stay here. You stay there. Maybe that's for the best. So in this episode, we'll be discussing quite a pressing matter. Why don't we listen to a little audio cue to get us in the mood? Hmm.
1: Yes, this week we're going to be talking about one of the most revolutionary inventions ever created, and that is the printing press. Because who doesn't love a book, you know, or a nice political pamphlet? Maybe you spend those long, lonely nights as we do in the basement looking at our favourite takeaway menus. You know, everyone has a different definition of a page turner. Yes, and by takeaway menus, I assume you mean copies of the Beano. Yes, but they're stained with madras, so it feels like one.
0: <laughs> oh, how I'll miss the carpet shop.
1: Now, the printing press is something everyone knows. Everyone knows what a printing press is. But, funny enough, most people won't actually know who invented it or where it was invented. And, you know, being Europeans, we have a very European-centric view on everything. We created all the great things that ever existed, which often actually isn't the case at all. And with the printing press, like most things in the world that we think we created, was actually created a very long time ago in Asia. So for anyone who's unsure, a printing press, in its most simple
0: terms, is a mechanical device which allows the mass production of printed documents. This is achieved through movable type, which is something we'll discuss later on. But Witchcraftery. Bas- Witchcraftery, I say. Quiet over there. Right. It basically allows text and documents and books to be mass produced. Uh, loads and loads of identical copies to be made. And through this, it makes
1: uh, the publication of texts more affordable and more accessible. The first printing press, as we know, was actually invented in Korea, but this also built on years of work done previously throughout China. So one of the first recorded books was the Diamond Sutra, which was a Buddhist book from Don Huang in China from around 86 AD. Uh, which was during the Tang dynasty. And it's said to be the oldest known printed book. And it was created with a method known as block printing, which basically uses little carved pieces of wood, uh, obviously in reverse and then stamped down onto, well, back then it would have been vellum rather than paper.
0: Yes, as you said, a, a lot of the elements, um, which would become the modern printing press, were in existence in China at the time. However... The difference between uh, their emergence in China and their later emergence in Europe was that the Chinese alphabet contains a whole lot more characters, so the gains in efficiency weren 't anywhere near as great in China as they were when the printing press would later emerge in
1: europe no that 's absolutely right the The complex nature of the the different alphabets across Asia made printing a bit more difficult because alphabets you know there are hundreds and hundreds of different combinations. Whereas, you know, the European alphabet was a lot simpler. Even though you had this sort of early woodblock printing, it was time-consuming to create these kind of books. Even when they introduced metal block printing, which was also developed uh, to produce books around Buddhists and Taoist texts, it was still a bit of a complex procedure. So the other important element was movable type. These are individual
0: letters which are cast in metal and are then used as a sort of stamp. And they they can be lined up in rows to make rows of text. And these also had their origins in China. However, they were never really able to supplant woodblock printing in the region. So we believe that movable type was invented in China by a commoner called Bai Sheng. This would have been between about 1041 and 1048. And his type was originally made of clay rather than the later metal. And it was attached to the inside of a, um, a metal frame. The advantage of movable type, of course, was that it could be disassembled and reused. And this made the printing of words
1: much quicker and cheaper. By 1279, you know, books were a commonplace thing in China and indeed a status symbol, you know, much like they are today when you're on a Zoom call and you just see a bookcase, you know, full of interesting volumes, show-offs basically. But unfortunately, this this clay-baked system didn't last too long because by 1297, they returned to using wood. And there was a guy called uh, Wang Chen who printed a treatise on agriculture and farming practices called Nongshu. So, you know, a real page turner right there. <laughs> I mean, whoa. Uh, and he created a revolving table for typesetters to organise with more efficiency. And Nung Shu is considered the world's first mass produced book. And it was even exported to Europe. But before we step into this, it's important to talk about one more person. And that's a person in Korea.
0: Cho Yan Yui was a civil minister in 13th century Korea. Uh, The country had been having trouble with invaders coming over and generally doing a spot of pillaging. And the the Buddhist monks in Korea at the time engaged Cho to come up with a way to preserve the Tripitaka, a Buddhist text produced in China that kept being burnt by the invaders. Some of these invaders were the Mongols, but of course it's always the Mongols, isn't it? But the lengthy book would have required an impossibly large number of woodblocks So Chou Yan Yui came up with an alternative. Uh, Building on earlier Chinese attempts to create movable type, he adapted a method that had been used for minting bronze coins in order to cast three-dimensional characters in metal. He then arranged these pieces in a frame, coated them with ink, and used them to press sheets of paper. When he was done, he could reorganise the metal characters, eliminating the need to persistently chisel the blocks. And he completed the project in 1250 AD, after initially being asked to start in 1234. So, quite a long period, but then it was quite a big job, and it was made a lot quicker by the use of the movable type.
1: Yes, so a couple of hundred years before Johannes Gutenberg even you know, was born, or was considering inventing movable type, it already existed. Uh, and there's certain historical suggestions that this system may have actually travelled further west than we originally think, but it was also the Korean alphabet was still pretty big and still pretty complex. And as you you mentioned, they kept getting invaded. So the chance to export this kind of process didn't really take off that well. And the Mongols did invade again. And funny enough, there are records finding this sort of movable type in more Western areas that they did move into. So there is a possibility that this process could have been transferred to Europe, but there are no records around that. So the first instance we have of movable type in Europe being created is Johannes Gutenberg. If only there was a a cheap and easy
0: way of uh, printing material en masse, then uh, maybe we could have this
1: information. It's interesting because it's very hard to imagine what life was like when something didn't exist. Can you imagine life now without the internet? It'd be unthinkable. Where would you get your history podcasts from? Exactly, yeah. Anyway, but before we get to the printing press and rather the creation of it, What was life like before it? So previously, uh, whenever we wanted a copy of something, whether that be a manuscript or a a book, it had to be handwritten. And that took bloody ages. So this was done mainly in monasteries and universities by learned scholars or, or devout religious figures like monks. In fact, in monasteries, they had a special room called a scriptorium which sounds great. Uh, and there a scribe would work in silence, measuring and outlining page layouts, then carefully copying text from one book to another book. And then later you get illustrators and illuminators who would take over and sort of add designs and then colour in, colour in the pages. Material was slow to be created. Material was limited in its quantity. And uh, the size of libraries was incredibly different to what we would imagine a library. In fact, the University of Cambridge had one of the largest libraries in Europe around the sort of thirteenth century, and it constituted just one hundred and twenty-two books. So you can imagine the late fine.
0: Of course, also with uh, with all books being copied by hand, you have the issue of just uh, human error. So you have a situation where one copy of a, a piece of work could be different to another, even though it's from completely the same. Source and author simply because it was reproduced
1: by two different people. A, a lot of books were obviously handwritten, but they also did incorporate woodblock printing, but not in the way we think of it. Uh, it was more individual pieces of wood. So uh, if you've ever seen like a stamp at the post office where they slam it down, it's a bit like that, but it's one individual wood block and that would have to be individually carved. And the problem was, as soon as you'd done that, wood would degrade and it wouldn't be. Reusable, and it took the imagination of a German goldsmith named Johannes Gutenberg to fundamentally change this process and in and in doing so, change basically the very fabric of society by the way i I don't know if he's related to Steve Gutenberg from Police Academy, but you know I'm pretty sure he isn't.
0: I'd like to think so, but um sadly the the sources are quite thin on the ground as far as uh, the Steve-Johann-Gutenberg relation is concerned. So Johannes Gutenberg was born in what was at the time the Holy Roman Empire, which is uh, present-day Germany. He was born in the town of Mainz, in the rhine Main area. There are slightly conflicting reports uh, concerning the exact year of his birth. We believe it was probably sometime between 1394 and 1404. Uh, The city of his birth, Mainz, Uh, have declared that they believe that he was born on the 24th of June 1400, uh, though this was most likely so that they could conveniently celebrate 500 years since his birth in uh, the year 1900. But 1400 is is a nice year. There's not a whole lot of information about Gutenberg's life uh, before he invented the press. There's not a whole lot after either. Most of our knowledge rests chiefly on the books which he produced, and on a relatively small number of documents which are kept about him. He, we know that he fell into debt several times and, uh, and records were kept of this. So most relate to legal or financial matters. So the surname Gutenberg is derived from a house which um, Johann's father inherited. This suggests that the family was probably relatively well off uh, and we believe that his father was likely involved in the cloth trade. As an adult, Gutenberg took an interest in printing. Later on, he moved to the city of Strasbourg, where he continues to research printing. We know that by 1448, he'd moved back to Mainz and had taken a loan from a local money lender called Johann Fust in order to develop his press. He set up a workshop in the town, and it's here that he began printing various texts.
1: Yes, by 1448, he was settled in Mainz and he had his own shop, thanks to those loans from, from Fust it's it's kind of funny really because he developed this idea because he wanted to make money so it's you know desperation is the mother of invention and what his process was was very similar to actually the korean process that we, we mentioned earlier he took letters created them in reverse in brass and then made molds of these using molten lead so he'd obviously used some of his experience as a goldsmith and a metallurgist And he used metals that he was familiar with, like lead, tin, and he cast 290 blocks of letters and symbols and created his own ink. He then adapted a wine press that allowed him to slide paper in and out. So it squeezed all the moisture and the water out of it from the paper after printing. And among his first publications printed using this movable type system were the Poem of the Last Judgment and the Calendar for 1448. So, you know, uh, I think the latter probably was the most useful And then, uh, a few years later, he prints his infamous series of Gutenberg Bibles, around 180 copies of a 42-line Bible. And part of Gutenberg's technique for creating these blocks was he was trying to imitate the essence of the handmade volumes that preceded him. It was still beautifully illustrated, it was still beautifully written, but it was just much easier to create. And sadly, only 22 of the original Bibles are known to be in existence today. And they can fetch upwards of around 30 million a copy. So (laughs) if you're down your local charity shop, make sure you have a little dig around.
0: Yes, uh, sadly, Gutenberg could have used that cash himself, as it wasn't long before uh, Johann Fust, who had lent him the money to build the press, uh, called the loan in. Gutenberg couldn't afford it, so Fust sued him and was able to take control of Gutenberg's workshop, um, as well as half of the printed Bibles. The ordeal almost bankrupted Gutenberg. He did go on to set up another printing workshop. However, little records exist of this endeavour and it's believed it probably wasn't anywhere near as successful as uh, as the first one. So it's kind of a sad end for Gutenberg. He was later given a title by uh, the Archbishop von Nassau for his work. Uh, This included a stipend of 2,000 litres of wine, which I'm sure anybody would probably be quite happy with, and Gutenberg continued to claim this until his death in 1468. Gutenberg himself kept very few records during his life, and little is known about him other than a few of his more notable achievements uh, and run-ins with money
1: lenders. It's just funny, isn't it, how there's a sort of great irony about these people who create these, these devices that allow for the creation of things to be written down and <laughs> there's, there's nothing written down about them
0: yeah it's kind of funny isn't it the gutenberg created invention which which really sort of enabled people to to publish information to share information and yet he didn't really write down or share information about himself
1: uh it's, it's not like he couldn't have tried you know because paper had been invented. Of- you know a couple hundred years before and everyone was using it to you know write more correspondence and write their diary you know where's where's samuel peeps when you bloody need him he's never around is he
0: no well of course he's busy burying
1: his cheese in the garden as always so once gutenberg had created his press he kind of uh, let the cat out of the bag because within about 10 years of him creating this device printing shops were popping up all over Europe, you know, German printers moved to different cities, and they took with them these devices and the knowledge of printing books. Because obviously, if you create something, you need a market for it. So by settling in places like Venice and London, they had access to ports where they could create stuff, and then it could be transported to other climes. So ships that left Venice carried religious texts and literature but also uh, news so they would sell these sort of four-page news pamphlets to sailors and captains and when their ships arrived in distant ports the local printers there would then copy the pamphlets hand them off to people who would then take them to different pubs and local gatherings where they would basically sort of read them and that's the sort of early beginnings of of modern news really that right there it's a bit like someone standing on the bus today and reading the Metro out loud. I guess the ability to, to just buy a newspaper
0: or to, to open up a news website and, and to read the news is maybe something we take for granted these days. But it was Gutenberg's invention that really kind of heralded the um, the arrival of mass communication. And, and with it permanently altering the structure of society, suddenly... The circulation of information became far less restricted. It wasn't just elites and sort of religious
1: leaders who could um, who could share this information. What the printing press did for society was arguably transformative, but also incredibly disruptive. And it and it also put the idea of truth up for grabs because suddenly people could create their own versions of truths so obviously the most famous is Martin Luther when he posted his famous 95 thesis in 1517 but in three years his printed works had sold over 300,000 copies and uh, a religious reformation had begun. Weirdly one of the, the things that came about was that you suddenly had this sort of transparency Uh, opening up for a lot of the professions that had collected writings or been responsible for the creation of writings. So a lot of formulas, scientific and wildly unscientific, were starting to be known and unraveled. No one had a great sense of being able to tell them apart. So it was difficult to know whether someone was being a charlatan or someone was being truthful.
0: It's interesting that that the term fake news is something we associate with with the last few years but it it's really been there since the start
1: yes however it did do one important thing it did vastly improve punctuation which we can all be thankful for uh, because as you mentioned earlier when individual scribes were replicating books they would often you know make mistakes they misspell words they'd put the odd comma or apostrophe in the wrong place and <laughs> suddenly you had the rise of a lot of grammar nazis who would get their hands on printed books and go, "Well, that's wrong. That should be spelled like that. Or well, that should say that." So uh, <laughs> it led to more consistent spelling, grammar, punctuation, but also allowed readers to consistently interpret the ideas and thoughts of the of, of what was being presented in different ways, so that they could actually improve upon ideas that came before. Yes, and with this
0: consistency. Um- we also see the rise of things like um, page numbering and tables of contents and uh, and indexes, simply because uh, in the whole run of books, the first word on a page would be the same for every single copy of that book. So you could you could refer to page numbers now. Thank God for page numbers. If there's one thing to take from this, it's uh, it's that we underappreciate page numbers.
1: And in addition to sort of creating this sort of uh, revolution in thinking and aiding the, the the Renaissance that was ongoing that started in Italy and Florence. It also reshaped society a bit it reshaped the the hierarchical and economical structure of many towns and cities so a lot of the production of printing required new roles, new jobs and it was a coming together of the old order of scribes of illustrators, of guilders merging with printers, copiers, stationers to to create a sort of new class structure in a way as well as an economic structure so peter schofer who was actually a printer with gutenberg and obviously left to start his own business he sort of helped transform printing from a retail trade into the wholesale industry within a few short years yeah i i, mean, I know
0: we've we've said it before but it really was the internet of its day by the time gutenberg had invented his printing press the italian renaissance was in full swing and this was really perfect timing for it as one of the goals of the renaissance was to uh seek out ancient texts um they kind of had this idea that they wanted to revive the ancient roman educational system once they found these texts they wanted to republish them for people to be able to to read and to study and the printing press was ideal for this there's kind of a misconception that the printing press in some way launched the renaissance this isn't really
1: true but it kind of kicked it into gear in a way with the advent in printing it actually had the effect of showing up some of those ancient sages of the past because once once people got to see all the 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 old maps the old texts uh the old scientific theories and formulas they suddenly realized that actually they probably knew a lot more today than the old masters did then so (laughs) they could take the text improve them and amend them and in fact one of the Additional side effects of printing books was that it allowed students to learn without having to listen to teachers. It allowed craftsmen to take up new roles. You know, self help books are not a modern invention, they were mass produced as soon as the printing press (laughs) was readily available in cities. And by the 1490s, every major European state had a centre for publishing. So, aside from being a cultural, educational, uh, generally transformative device, it was really the first mass communication revolution. When we think about books and pamphlets and leaflets, we don't think of them as being communication devices anymore because we have telephones and we have the internet, we have you know, WhatsApp. But say you've got a, a banker in Vienna. He's suddenly being able to read a copy of the Bible or a, a copy of How to Improve Your Posture. And that same copy is in London in a baker's shop. They're reading the same thing. So they're taking on board the same message. And, and that's really what the printing revolution did. It allowed the dissemination of messages on a much wider scale than previously thought and took it outside the realms of the established authorities and powers. So much like the,
0: the rise of the internet at the end of the 20th century, um, the printing press took a little while to take off. But when it did, it was really a huge game changer. It's often been considered the, the single greatest discovery in, in human history. Uh, whether you believe in that or not, it's kind of up to you, but you, you can't really deny that the huge impact it's had on, on human society. Right, so now's the point in the, uh, in the podcast where we would normally discuss uh, an interesting fact that Nick and I have found during the course of our research. So I think I'll go first for this one, if you don't mind. My interesting fact is that Johann Gutenberg, uh, his surname came from the name of a property which inherited by his father. That was a, a surname that his father took on after Johann had been born. His original name was Johannes Gensfleisch, which translates roughly to goose meat uh, for some reason. Um, and his family decided to change the name when he was young. I wonder why you, you can understand why maybe he wouldn't want to be called Mr. Goosemeat. Was he a vegetarian? I don't know, maybe maybe he was a vegetarian uh, I think I think Gutenberg being the the name of a property, probably sounds a bit more impressive so uh
1: yeah, that was my interesting fact. uh what have you got so? Before the arrival of the printing press, there was a greater emphasis on collective memory in society. Uh, so do you remember all those nursery rhymes when you were a kid and like little mnemonic devices you use when you're trying to learn something? They had exactly the same role centuries ago that they do in modern society today, but they were much more important because obviously it was a lot more painful to write everything down. So you, you needed these mnemonic devices, these rhymes, these poems lodged in your head so you could remember important things like recipes and formulas and when the printing press arrived it kind of made these slightly redundant because you no longer needed to memorize you know a 16 page rhyme about how to cook your meat properly because you had it in a book in text and you could just refer to it so learning was transformed into a more autonomous pastime rather than being a sort of collective uh, process conversely it also encouraged the growth of imagery so although we had all these printed texts you had the the growth of visual aids like signs symbols icons lots of scientific texts which had lost images over time suddenly had them reinserted back in
0: yeah that that's interesting that sort of um you can kind of see this in, in storytelling as well in the before the printing press um uh, people would be a storyteller they would uh, they would read stories from memories to people and that's how they would be passed on whereas after printing press, but these things start getting written down into books, and you see the demise of the professional storyteller. That is, of course, until the rise of Mister Tumble, or J.K. Rowling, or J.K. Rowling, or um, whoever was on Jack and Nory. Um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting, you know. It it we we can see all these new jobs being created, but we're also seeing old jobs uh, dying off as well at the same time. Wow, well, they just became authors, didn't they? Those storytellers. Or politicians.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, telling tall tales.
0: Now uh, we would normally discuss uh, some myths that we'd like to dispel about the topic. So, Nick, what's
1: your myth for this episode? We've kind of already addressed the main myth about Johannes Gutenberg not being the originator of of movable type. But uh, one of the things I found interesting when looking at this was the idea of literacy. Uh, So in in my head, a lot of medieval people were illiterate. But this probably actually wasn't the case. Now, while there is no definitive proof of literacy rates amongst the populations of the 14th and 15th century, uh, we do have some sort of records which suggest that you could be a sort of lower social status person and enjoy reading and be able to read. And just because you were rich or noble didn't mean you necessarily read. So there were a lot of nobles who just enjoyed sport and hunting, who probably never picked up a book in their life. Literacy was never sort of black and white. So there was a lot more comprehension than previously thought. What's what's your myth, Will?
0: It would be very easy to assume, and I'm sure many people do, that after this this great innovation of the printing press which made the reproduction of, of documents and books so much easier and cheaper and more accessible that after that all documents would be produced with it that handwriting books would just disappear but that's not really the case uh, we know that handwritten books actually did persist after the printing press and they were still held in very high regard While handwritten books did kind of continue, they became more of a a niche affair and nowhere near as profitable as uh, as printed texts. Um, Wholesale book creation was not a sustainable business of its own before the advent of the printing press. And that's the end of our podcast and the end of this first series of The Gallimorphry. Thank you for joining us as we take a hodgepodge look at history. Uh, we hope you'll join us again later this year when we return with season two.
1: Uh, but Nick, what does everyone have to look forward to in our next series? Yes, thank you so much for listening. And, and hopefully you've you've been entertained, educated and, and generally had fun. Uh, next series, we've got a whole host of fascinating topics from, you know, the origin of the post office to the world's first serial killer to where exactly that famous scream that you've probably heard in films a thousand times originated. So those are just some of the topics which you can look forward to hearing all about when we
0: return later this year. Until then, thank you for listening. Please do subscribe if you haven't done so already to hear as soon as we're back with another episode. Or you can email us at info at Please do get in contact with us. We're always happy to have a word.